Welcome to Happier Healthier with Conway Medical Center. I'm your host, Claire Purnell, and I'm so glad you are tuning in today. Our guest is Dr. Najla Itani, Medical Director of CMC's Cancer Center and hematologist and oncologist. Dr. Itani has been with the CMC Cancer Center since its inception almost five years ago. Now she lives in Texas and is able to continue leading cancer care here in our community through telehealth and with the awesome hands-on care her team here is able to provide to patients. As we wrap up the month of February, which is also National Cancer Prevention Month, we thought Dr. Itani would be the perfect guest to talk about all things cancer care. In this episode, we talk about the importance of screenings for preventing cancers and potentially saving lives, how to deal with a cancer diagnosis, how to support someone you love who has been diagnosed with cancer, the evolution of treatments and technologies, and measures you can take today that could help you stay cancer-free. And just as a reminder, all content discussed on CMC's Happier Healthier podcast are the individual opinions of our hosts and guests and should not be construed as personalized medical advice. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast to treat any medical condition for either yourself or others. Consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be having. This disclaimer applies to any guest or contributor to the podcast. With that, let's get into today's episode with the CMC Cancer Center's medical director, oncologist, and hematologist, Dr. Najla Itani. We've been really excited to have you on, and February is Cancer Prevention Month, so that's kind of going to be the big focus. But before we dive into everything, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. We'll start with our introduction question that we ask everyone. So what have you been doing recently to make you feel a little happier and healthier? Yeah, I mean, I think when you have kids, you constantly have to find things like that. So um, I have a five-year-old, so we tend to do workouts together. Like we find videos and do just fun workouts together. And I think that just makes me really happy, obviously, because I get to see him also get into it. Um, But I, because I do telehealth, I'm constantly at a desk. And so I bought like a little bike recently to put under the desk. Uh, And so between patients, I'm kind of like pedaling away. (laughs) just to keep my blood circulating, to keep me kind of moving. Cause I was always used to being up and about and now in telehealth, it's very different. We're kind of, you know, sitting most of the time. So, yeah. That is so cute that your kid works out. You do you use them as a yeah. weight? I've seen some of those. No, I, I don't, I don't really have the guts to do that. To be honest with you, I'm a little bit scared that I'll drop him, but no, he's just always next to me and he loves doing all these fancy moves with me. So yeah, yeah, it works. And let's, Briefly, let's talk about telehealth. How has that expanded your care? Um, So when we first talked about doing oncology through telehealth, I'll be honest with you, I was terrified because from my standpoint, I'm very much an in-person type of physician. And so the only reason we agreed to ever do it was because I had like a nurse practitioner on site. And so I do have hands when I need them. And, you know, having that type of person be there is so important. And so it's, it's helped us expand really nicely because I feel like patients feel secure when they know that we're kind of a unit, we work together. And then most of my patients already kind of knew me as I transitioned to telehealth. So they were familiar with my way and my style and they were already comfortable with me. But even the new patients, I mean, so far, at least what we've heard, things have been going you know, pretty well and, and patients have been receptive to it. Why did you choose to start doing telehealth? 
Oh, well, that wasn't fully my decision, only because I my husband's uh, my husband got a really good job opportunity here in Austin. And so because of that, we had to kind of relocate. But I was so attached to CMC and my patient base. And I felt like we'd really made really good progress and kind of built something from nothing. And so I was like, I can't just up and leave. Um, so we came up with a creative solution. And honestly, COVID allowed us to open that door, right? I mean, before COVID, many people were like, what is telehealth? How is this supposed to work? But surprisingly, people were open to it. And even our you know, older patients were very open to it. And so it happened. That's awesome. So let's talk about you. Um, so now you're in Austin, you were in mm -hmm. South Carolina. So where are you originally from? So my story, my back, my background story is a little bit complicated. I'm originally Lebanese, but I was born in Saudi Arabia in what I call a bubble. And so my parents were actually both physicians and they were recruited there um, to work at a place called Aramco. So it was like this American compound within Saudi Arabia and that's why I call it the bubble. Um, so I grew up with people from all over the world and um, you know, I, I think I had a wonderful childhood and I feel very blessed that I got that opportunity. But um, yeah, my parents were both physicians who constantly told me, please don't go into medicine. And I obviously didn't listen. <laughs> why'd they say that they were just worried about the lifestyle like it can be very you know cumbersome and like it's many years of education and I think the more they said no the more I saw them and I was like okay well this is you know something I want to do I was inspired by them it kind of worked the opposite way you know like reverse psychology I guess what was it about medicine that really drew you in uh, it was always the patience. Honestly, I think um, I always felt like I wanted to do something with a vulnerable population of people. And, you know, there are many different specialties that touch on that, not just medicine. But I felt like because I already had that, you know, window open for me through my parents, it became easier. And it was just like a natural fit for me. I felt like that population was just one that spoke to me. And then my own personal family had gone through, you know, various illnesses that I had to be witness to. And I think that helped to kind of solidify it for me. And what led you down the oncology and hematology path? Yeah, um, that's a little bit more specific because what ended up happening is, well, one, my father went through cancer when I was quite young. And so I got to see that firsthand and really kind of go through the trials and tribulations of what cancer really means and, and learn about it really early on in life. But then when I started medical school, you kind of rotate through different wards. Um, and as I rotated through the oncology ward, I just always felt like it was home. It, something just felt very familiar to me, which sounds crazy because you're like, why would cancer be home? But it it just felt right. And like like I said, I'm very drawn to more vulnerable populations. And I think in the world of oncology, patients are pretty much stripped down to just their complete and utter faith in the system. And whether that be religion or the medical system or whatever it is, they are completely stripped down and vulnerable to, you know, the physician. And so that was something I felt like I could help in. And then going through the wards, I had this incredible mentor and he taught me that cancer care was all about the bedside and all about connecting with patients, having bedside manner. And so I was just like, this is it. I got to do this. And you are very big on connecting with your patients. How do you do that? I mean, I'm sure it's not always an easy task. Um, 
Yeah, no, it definitely isn't easy because everyone's different, right? So you kind of have to figure out what makes a patient um, kind of tick, right? And what what is what are the things that are important to them? But I think the good thing about oncology is it lends itself to a deep connection with patients and really connecting because if you don't, then you're not going to be successful, right? Because like I said, they're going to have to really strip down and be vulnerable for you. And so in and of itself, there's already very sensitive topics being discussed, like how long am I going to live? Is this something that's going to take my life? What about my children? So there's already lots of different topics that come into it that lend themselves to like a deep connection. Um, so I don't think you can practice any other way. At least that's how I look at it is, you know, unless you make that deep connection with that patient, you're not going to have that trust and that faith in the system that they're going to be okay. Um, so, yeah. And when you have a connection to someone and you have to tell them, you know, this is the time you have and things like that. How do you do that without breaking down every time, you know? Yeah, um, it's never easy. Like, I don't think anybody will ever tell you it's an easy thing. Um, but in reality, in those moments, we always have to remember that we're the advocate, right? And so that patient is looking for an honest, straightforward answer from us. And I think that's the part that's really difficult because in various parts of the world, cancer and, and oncology is practiced very differently from what I've seen because I've, I've lived in multiple places. But the one thing I kind of love about how we practice here in the West is that things are very straightforward and that we don't want to ever kind of block things from the patient or hide things from the patient. So um, it's not easy, but I think with time, you kind of get used to familiarizing yourself with patients and figuring out the way that works best for them. So some people are like, I just want it blunt, straightforward, like don't beat around the bushes, doc. And then other people are like, I just want the main points and like the positive ones only. And then you can tell me the negative ones later. And so you just kind of have to, you know, cater to each patient and feel your way through it. But I think, you know, having having a lot of experience in it and doing it over and over again, it does become easier delivering the news, but actually delivering the news itself is still heavy. So how did you get to CMC from your bubble? From my bubble? <laughs> wow. Oh, so that's a long one. No. Um, so I got to CMC from my bubble. So I left Saudi Arabia um, and went to high school in Bahrain. So that's right next door. I lived in like a dorm. And so we were basically went back and forth between the two countries uh, for high school. And then I transferred back to Lebanon for medical school. So I did all of my medical school there. Um, and then I started some residency there and I actually did a year of research there too. And then I moved to Kansas. So I knew I needed to do, yeah, I needed, I, I need to do residency and some more training in the US. I really, that was always the goal because I knew that I wouldn't really be able to expand on my dreams unless I moved. And so it was more about, you know, getting uh, through the door. So Kansas is where I landed. Uh, I did my residency there and then uh, fellowship in Iowa. And then from Iowa, we ended up in Conway Myrtle Beach. And that's, you know, where it started. I think both my husband and I, cause he's a, um, he's a physician as well. We had to look for a place that we could both work in. Um, and honestly, the CMC job literally dropped in my lap. And it's always a funny story because I tell people when I was recruited, I, I came and interviewed and they showed me a storage room. They said, this is going to be our cancer center. And I was like, okay, this is all a bunch of boxes. Like, it's really dark room. Like, okay, I, I got to see potential, you know. 
but it was again the people like the people that i interviewed with they were so wonderful that i was like okay i have faith in the system let's do this <laughs> so yeah nice. it worked out well that's crazy do you find that your expertise across hematology oncology and then you also have expertise in internal medicine do you find that you bring kind of a combination of the three um, approaches to your patients? Definitely. That I think goes without saying, because it's, it's funny, like when we're in school, we always think like, why am I learning algebra and all these random subjects that I'm never going to use? But this is one situation where internal medicine is always used, like literally day to day in Hemonk. And I always tell um, our team, like, we're here to treat patients and not specifically diseases. And so when you treat a patient, there are all these other things and other comorbidities and other issues that you have to dive into to be able to treat their cancer. So it just comes naturally to have the internal medicine background. Um, and it's like another tool, right? It's a really great tool to have in our toolbox to use whenever we need um, to treat things and complications of treatment also kind of you know, stem into the internal medicine aspect of things. If someone has an infection, if someone has pneumonia or whatever it may be, that's still internal medicine at its finest. So, yeah. We're, we're talking a lot about cancer screenings, the importance of, you say, early uh, detection means early intervention. So can you kind of speak on that? Absolutely. Um, so I think, honestly, if I could have no job in this world and never see cancer, that would be wonderful. Uh, you know, I'd be happily out of a job. And so the most important thing for us is to, if we can, obviously prevent it. But if we can't prevent it, then try to detect it early, right? So when we say early detection means early intervention, it means the sooner you can get to that cancer and find it, the higher the chance that you can have a meaningful intervention that you could be cured, right? So the ultimate thing with cancer is most of the time cure comes from some sort of a surgical intervention, right? So patients need to have surgery. Sometimes it's radiation, but most often it's like, if I can catch something early enough, I can cut it out. And if I can cut it out, then there's an even better chance that I can cure it. And that patient can live a happy life without ever worrying about this thing called cancer. Right. But if it's detected a lot later, then the interventions dwindle down and then some patients come in at very advanced stages and they're on treatments for the rest of their life. It's not curable and it could potentially take their life. So I think that's a really, really big difference between encouraging people to get their screenings done and really making a difference in their life. Um, and it can be life or death, honestly. What are some of the technologies utilized in our cancer center that offer detection? So we don't specifically screen for patients within our cancer center, but CMC as a whole has many different ways to screen for patients um, that, you know, might have cancer. And so obviously mammography is a really big one. And so we offer mammography through CMC and then there's a mobile mammography unit, which is wonderful, gets to patients in areas that really would never have a mammogram otherwise. Um, and then the big thing is we have a, a great gastroenterology and pulmonology team at CMC too. And so both of those teams do different types of procedures um, to catch cancers as well. So whether the gastroenterology team is doing colonoscopies and those sorts of things um, to detect colon cancer. And then our pulmonary team has a lot of advanced techniques that they use, let alone the low dose CAT scanner for lung cancer, right? So those are some of the things that CMC, I think, offers as a whole 
um, in general for cancer screening. We don't specifically do them in our cancer center, but if a patient comes to us and has had, like, let's say they've had breast cancer and now they're cured, and obviously the one thing we always worry about is we need to screen you for other cancers. We need to make sure that you're a survivor, a true survivor, right? So we'll typically start by running through a list of things that they qualify for in screenings, and then we'll coordinate those from our center, if that makes sense. Yeah, and what about treatments? What technologies do you all have for that? Yeah, so treatments is really everything, anything and everything you can think of. The one thing we obviously don't do through our cancer center is bone marrow transplant, and so those types of patients would be sent to an academic center. But we offer anything from traditional chemotherapy to immunotherapy, targeted therapies. Uh, we give patients IV fluids and nausea medications while they go through treatments. Um, we used to give blood on site, but because now we're a separate unit outside of CMC, we actually coordinate that. But the nice thing about it is we coordinate it still as an outpatient, so patients don't have to go through the emergency room. So that is also another treatment that we offer um, through our service line. But those are the big things. I mean, anything that you can think about is technically possible in the community, but there are very specific types of chemo and very specific types of cancer diseases that you can't really do in the community. And so those are typically sent out uh, to universities. For patients dealing with a cancer diagnosis, what advice do you have for them to cope mentally and emotionally? Uh, that's, uh, that's a great question because we always get asked this actually. And um, I think the most important thing and the number one thing we always tell patients is find your people. So it's like, find your network, right? So all those favors that you needed to cash into somebody, <laughs> cash them in, you know, lean on the people that are around you, whether it's your neighbors, your friends, your family, all those people really want to help. At least if they're the people that love and care for you, those are people who want to find a way to help. But oftentimes they feel so torn because they don't know how to help cancer patients. So if you're the one going there saying, hey, I need a, a ride here, or I need something like, you know, someone to cook me a meal, those are the types of people who are going to step up and help you. So we always tell our patients, find your people, right? Um, and then the other big one, I think, is finding an outlet. So a lot of our patients have different hobbies. Some of them like music, some of them are artists, and they all have different sorts of hobbies. And we feel like having an outlet or a way to kind of vent during those really heavy, dark times, especially as they go through treatments, is so important. You know, you just need something that constantly brings you joy, whether that's your family or at an actual activity. We just really encourage people to find that thing, right? Um, and then I think the last one is more like a realization for patients. So oftentimes we tell our patients, don't forget that you're not defined by your cancer. So cancer is not you, it is just a disease and you are still you at your core. So those are the things that you need to separate because the cancer is gonna make you feel X, Y, Z. It's gonna make you feel these certain ways, but you're still you. And it's okay to feel these ways from the cancer because we're many of our patients get angry, they get sad. They have moments where they want to give up. And we tell them that's very normal as part of their emotional coping through this process. They even have to grieve to some extent because some patients have to grieve the person they were before the cancer and the person now that they are. And so. What we tell them is you have to give yourself permission to be that way, right? Give yourself grace. It's okay. It's okay to be tired. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be angry. Um, and it's okay to realize that 
you might not be as active as you were before. Like we have so many patients who are hard workers that are always running, doing everything, exercising, and then they get hit with cancer. And for them, it's more of a realization of, okay, I'm tired. I can rest. I don't have to push through this. That's okay. I'm just going to take a break. So yeah, I think those are the big things, finding your people, finding your outlet, and just shifting that mentality. And what are some ways we can help if someone we love or care about is diagnosed with cancer? Yeah, I mean, I think more than anything, being there is the most important thing, right? So some people are like, oh, what can we do? What can we say? Sometimes you literally have to do and say nothing. If you just go with that person to their appointments, if you sit with them through their infusions, which we do allow in the infusion center, we allow someone to come in with patients. If you're just there, I think that by itself is already putting you 20 steps ahead. It's more about realizing that your presence means so much more than anything else you could give that person. But obviously, you know, there are little things you can do, prepare a meal, you know, figure out what kind of nutritional supplements they would benefit from, help them out, drive them places, do their laundry, you know, just make them feel special. And I think, like I said, your presence is probably the most special thing you can give a patient and hearing them out. Um, are there any advancements in cancer research that you're excited about or maybe give you a little hope? I think there's a lot of hope in cancer. Um, in reality, if you compare where we were, you know, 25 years ago to now, it's a massive difference. We used to tell people with stage four lung cancer that they had six months to live and, you know, that was it. Now, patients with stage four lung cancer are living four years, five years sometimes, multiple years. So there's so many advancements that have happened. And I think part of that is because the most exciting thing is, you know, realizing that we have customizable cancer care. So, you know, back in the day, it was one size fits all. Okay, so you have this cancer. This is the only line of treatment you're going to have. That's it. Nothing else. Now we're realizing that if we send off specific testing, we can find mutations that patients have, and then we can really customize the treatment just for them and their cancer and get an even more meaningful outcome. Um, and so I think that's exciting. That's very exciting for me that we keep finding new targets, right? Hi everyone, it's Harley from the CMC Foundation here to share some exciting things we have coming up. February is Heart Month and our heart is in it. We are teaming up with Bojangles to support heart care in Horry County. For the entire month of February, proceeds from the purchase of Bojangles Bowberry Biscuits will go to cardiac care in our community. Grab a box of biscuits for you and someone you love and share a picture to social media to join in on the fun. And don't forget to tag at Conway Med. The other thing that I think is also exciting is we're now getting down to the microscopic level where we can detect cancer DNA in patients' blood. So if they've been cured of a cancer and we do this test, we can still see if there's any cancer DNA floating around and if there's a chance that it might come back. So, I mean, there's there's a lot happening in that field. And I think those are, you know, the things that I look forward to because I definitely think there's a lot of hope for cancer care in the future. Yeah. And just like there's a tailored approach to care, there's a tailored approach to screening that you emphasize a lot in your practice. Can you kind of speak to that? Yeah, it's so again, one size fits all doesn't really apply in Hemonk ever, right? So even in screenings, one size does not fit all. So when we talk about a tailored approach, it's more like 
figuring out what that patient's risk factors are, what's their family history, what are their personal preferences, what are their goals, and all those factors have to work together. And then you as the physician have to figure out, well, how does that play out into their screening preferences and the screening decisions, right? So that's what I mean by a more tailored approach. So like some patients, if they're more elderly, they may say, I don't really want to do this screening. Or even if I do this screening and I find something, then that means I need to have all these other procedures and I don't want to do that. And that's okay. That's a more tailored approach to a very specific patient. And then other patients who have a very strong family history of cancers, you know, and then they have all these medical issues that put them at risk even more for cancer, like they're a smoker or something. Those are the patients where you're going to be like really focusing, saying, hey, you really would benefit from these screening measures and, you know, take that approach. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's very much uh, no size fits all <laughs> type of a thing. What are some things that could impact your risk of cancer other than family history? You mentioned smoking. Um, yeah, smoking is probably the biggest one, and that's probably the biggest preventable risk factor, right? It's a lifestyle change, but um, alcohol is certainly one of the other things that we see in certain types of cancers, head and neck, esophageal cancer, um, even breast cancer sometimes is impacted by alcohol intake, uh, liver. And so there's that, and then there's also things like diet. So what we've learned about diet is a little bit controversial, but there are a few things that we feel like the data is pretty solid in. And I think when it comes to things like really overly processed foods or a lot of red meats, those sorts of things, we've, we're now knowing that, you know, it can impact cancer risk, especially things like colon cancer and excessive red meat, you know, intake. So I think diet is certainly one of those things, even exposure to sunlight, right? So <laughs> You all live in South Carolina, and I used to live there, but, you know, you're definitely exposed to a crazy amount of sunshine throughout the year and educating patients about, you know, the effects of that and how that could actually, you know, if you shield yourself from those UV rays, that you could actually be preventing really serious skin cancers like melanoma. What are some of those prevention measures we could take? So. Yeah, yeah. So, for example, for skin, uh, for sun exposure, sorry, it'd be things like wearing sunscreen, right? Avoiding tanning beds. In reality, back in the day, everyone thought tanning beds were safe, but they really didn't end up being that way. If you're under the age of 35 and you're using a tanning bed, then your chance of melanoma is like 75% higher uh, than the general population. So, definitely avoiding those things. Minimizing alcohol intake is definitely an important thing. Smoking cessation, I think that goes without, you know, saying. Uh, physical activity, exercise. So, you know, a lot of patients don't realize that there is actually an impact from that. I think the strongest link that we found is mostly with like breast and colon cancer and being physically active. You know, the specifics of how active and what kind of active, it's not so clear. But what they know is that patients that, you know, struggle with lack of physical activity with obesity, they are, of course, at higher risk of getting some of these cancers. So I think that definitely is a way to prevent um, cancer. And then the big one I think we kind of underestimate is vaccination and treatment of certain infections. So, you know, cervical cancer is has been linked to HPV. I mean, that's like a known virus that can cause cervical cancer. We now have a vaccine that we can offer to pediatrics. So if your child is like 11 or 12 years old, that's really the time that we start to encourage it. And that could potentially 
spare your child from having cervical cancer down the line. So I think that's an excellent preventative measure. Um, and the same thing with other viruses, really, like you have um, hepatitis, and that's a, a virus that we see very often. It can eventually lead to liver cancer in a, um, and also through cirrhosis. And that's something that can be easily treated. And the same thing with HIV. So patients that have HIV um, have been found to have lymphoma. And if you treat the HIV, then also the risk of that is kind of quieted. So yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways. And what about for cancers that don't have screenings, like pancreatic cancer? Correct, that doesn't, there isn't a screening. Um, it's tricky. There is kind of, but go ahead. Okay, well, are there symptoms people should look out for that are kind of common warning signs? Yeah, so I'm going to backtrack to your first part of that question. Um, so there is a way to screen for pancreas cancer, but it's not really something you do for the general population, right? So what we found is the best cancers to screen for are the ones that are at highest risk in the population. So like, you know, pancreas cancer is actually not very common in the general population. So what they found is it's not worth really screening the general population. But if you have a higher risk patient, so like if you have a family history of pancreas cancer or you carry a very specific type of genetic mutation, then yeah, you actually can be offered certain types of screenings. And that's usually done through the um, gastroenterology department. They may do certain pictures or certain procedures to screen those patients. But in general, if you don't qualify for that sort of a thing, the symptoms are super vague. So the problem here is that most people with pancreas cancer, if it's early stage, they don't really feel anything. They're pretty much asymptomatic. Sometimes if it gets more advanced, then they'll start to feel things like belly pain, you know, upper belly pain, nausea. They might have weight loss without really knowing why. They're just dropping the pounds. And then there's something called jaundice, so like yellowing of the skin and um, the tissues. They can see that. They can see changes in the color of their bowel movements. So, I mean, I think there are different symptoms that patients can see. It's just, unfortunately, sometimes those symptoms mean things may be more advanced, but it's not always the case. And are there common symptoms for other cancers that people should look out for, or is the, the best way to get those screenings? I mean, I think by far the best way is to get screenings. You know, when it comes to breast cancer, I think, you know, there is some evidence that doing breast exams can help with that too. But the screenings are going to be like your best bet. But symptoms, again, super general, right? That's the problem with cancer is weight loss could be from a million and one things. But, you know, unintentional weight loss, I think, is always a red flag. That's what we tell our community primary care, you know, and we get a lot of those referrals for unintentional weight loss, we're like, okay, yeah, we'll look for cancer. We start the screenings. Um, other things that can be pain. So a pain that doesn't seem to go away <laughs> in a very odd location. That's, you know, it's not like, oh, I sprained my back because I was playing a sport and that makes sense. It's more like, I don't know why I suddenly woke up one day and I have this pain that won't go away in my back. You know, those are the types of things that not necessarily mean cancer, but are enough for patient to go and see a doctor and be like, hey, can you maybe do a picture or examine me and make sure this isn't something more concerning? Um, I think in general, too, if you have a family history, then those symptoms in your mind should be even more highlighted, right? So it's kind of like, well, I know my whole family had breast cancer, so I'm going to be really careful about examining my breasts and making sure that any lump I see or feel, I'm calling about it. So yeah, I mean, I think the way I practice personally, I tell my patients, like, you can never tell me too much. 
So I'm always like, if you're worried about something, call me because I'll tell you if it's nothing, but let me help you decide that it's nothing. That's so, yeah. a great doctor. <laughs> it's way better than Googling. <laughs> yes, please don't Google. Please don't Google. <laughs> um, Say my mom has had breast cancer or my grandma mm -hmm. and I'm not 40 yet. Should I start getting screened anyway? Can I start getting screened anyway? Yeah, so that's very specific. So it depends on the age of your mother. Um, so like, for example, if your mother had breast cancer at 42, then typically you're going to have to have family members that are first degree relatives start to screen 10 years younger than her diagnosis year. So it would be around 32. You typically don't start before age 30. But, you know, most of the time for breast cancer, it's okay, start mammograms at around 40. But if you have a family history, then you can use that 10-year rule and potentially start sooner. And then also, if even if you um, weren't sure of the family history, but you carried a genetic mutation that makes you at a higher risk of breast cancer, then yes, absolutely. There are guidelines and reasons for us to screen you earlier. And in some patients, we even do MRIs of the breast, not just mammograms, like in our higher risk patients. And so the family history should mostly impact the frequency you get these screenings, correct? It would sometimes impact frequency, but mostly also impact when you start the screenings. So when you initiate them, that's most of the time. But like, for example, colon cancer, if you have a family history, like in a first degree relative, and you get a colonoscopy, you're probably going to get another one in five years, even though in most situations they're like, okay, if it's all good, you got 10 years, you don't have to repeat this. But it, because of the family history, they may say, okay, you need another one in five years. So that frequency does get impacted by family history, but I think family history plays the biggest role in when you actually start. And what advice would you give to someone putting off a screening, a colonoscopy, a mammogram, because either the procedure is a daunting task or maybe they're just really afraid of finding out? Oh, that's such a good question. Honestly, I think most of the time it's just I would tell them have a conversation with your physician because a lot of that stuff that you're worried about might not actually be something to worry about, right? So what we tell a lot of people, especially even for like lung cancer screening, there is it's so painless, right? You're just getting a scan. I mean, I get mammograms are different, colonoscopies are different, but there are many ways to get around those fears and your physician can work with you really well. Like we have great ways to get around patients who have anxiety with these procedures. And then we can also talk to them about, you know, okay, if we find this, this is what we got to do. We're going to be on top of it. We're going to be holding your hand. We're going to be right there with you. But I think the biggest thing is I would really encourage them to take ownership of it and do it. You know, like this is this is going to impact you in the long run. And it's very hard for people to see the impact in the moment, except after the fact, right? So it's like, after they found my breast cancer, now I realize how important that mammogram was to actually get, right? Um, but I think if you just open up, talk to your physicians, most of the time, I would say probably half that anxiety will probably be cut. That's awesome. And I'll ask one more question. What yeah. is um, something about what you do um, in the cancer center or in general that you wish more people knew or understood? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I think I wish people knew more about how much coordination goes into caring for one patient. 
um, only because there are so many specialties that we touch and so much coordination of care across surgery, radiation, primary care, nephrology, whatever it may be, that each patient, they require all that attention and all that care. And the other thing I think is so important that people don't realize is that we feel really strongly at the cancer center that the best way to advocate for patients is to make them feel heard. And that's something that oftentimes they don't get from potentially their community and not necessarily their other physicians, but just their community in general. They don't feel heard. So when they're coming into the cancer center, that's like priority number one. It's we got to make them feel heard because that's the best way that we can advocate for them. But yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, um, it's not as easy as it looks, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and just a quick piggyback question. How important is teamwork for you all? It's everything. Um, we don't function, honestly. I don't function through telehealth without my nurse in my left hand and my nurse practitioner in my right. It's it's literally the only way that we get by day to day. And patients know that and they see that because in reality, our cancer center isn't just doctors and nurses and you know front desk staff and a lab person, but we also have a social worker. We also have palliative care that come into our center and integrate with us. We usually have a financial counselor as well. And so for us, it's all of those team members laying eyes on that patient, looking at that patient in a full circle view and making sure that, you know, all of their needs are attended to. So yeah, teamwork is is everything. And I will tell you, I'm, I'm so proud of that team. Just so incredibly proud. That's awesome. That's great to hear. Um, yeah. Is there anything else you want to add or do you want to speak on? I would just honestly still encourage people to take ownership of their health. Like I think, Claire, the big thing that we're seeing is that we become lazy. We allow the system to take care of us, but instead we should take the reins. We should say, well, I want to be screened. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm a smoker. What do you think about lung cancer screening? Hey, I, you know, I had breast cancer in my family. What do you think if I get a mammogram? I love it when patients take that initiative because that tells me that I can meet them halfway and we can go there together. Right. So I just I think with all the data that's coming out, I mean, I literally the other day read the WHO said we're going to be increasing new cancer cases by 77 percent by the year 2050. So you can only imagine that I'm like, oh, my goodness. Well, if we can at least catch some of those in the early stages through screening, then, hey, we're going to be better for it. But it really requires not just the doctor to advocate. It requires that patient to really take ownership of their health. And so that's something we really try to hit hard on. Um, in our day-to-day -day practice. That's awesome. I'm I'm clipping that. <laughs> Some great yeah. advice. Of course. Okay, well, that is all my questions. We'll wrap it up. Okay. Um, thank you so much for doing this. I learned of a ton. Course. I'm sure everyone listening learned a lot. And we'll be getting those screenings soon. Okay, awesome. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Claire. Thank you. Happier Healthier with Conway Medical Center is brought to you by the CMC Foundation. Learn more at www.cmcfoundationsc.com or visit the link in our show notes. This month, the CMC Foundation is working to raise money for cardiac care. You can head straight to the Foundation website to donate or check out our social media pages for ways to help out and have a little fun while you're at it. 
You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Conway Med and on Facebook and TikTok at Conway Medical Center. And thank you so much for listening. If you liked this episode, please leave a five-star rating and review to help us continue to make more episodes. Again, we really appreciate you all and we are wishing you happiness and health. We'll see you next week.